together. Gracious Lord Jesus, we ask again that you would be gracious to us. We ask as we gather eight days after the resurrection that you would do what you did for those first disciples, that you would come and stand and speak a word to us. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Please be seated. Well, every year on Easter Day, uh, we get to hear one of the three great stories, one of the four, I should say, great stories of the women uh, heading to the tomb to anoint the dead body of Jesus. Uh, all of those stories uh, tell the same thing, but from slightly different perspectives. Uh, and so the four evangelists uh, have indeed done that. They have given us their perspectives. And every year we hear either Mark or Matthew or Luke tell that story. And we did again last, last week. And we are meant to hear in that first Easter day, again, that the context was the dismal expectations of those early disciples. Nobody expected resurrection. Nobody could understand resurrection. Resurrection had not yet happened. And then we are to hear that and to hear then the angel's cosmic changing message. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. That's Easter Day, and we glory in Easter Day. Uh, but Easter is so big and the resurrection is so large that the church in its wisdom has said we need 50 days to reflect on this utterly cosmic changing reality. And so for the first three weeks of each Easter season, we come back to one of the resurrection appearance stories. For three solid weeks every year, we hear three of these stories, and we hear them over and over and over again. Now, the uniqueness of this day is simply this. Of those three weeks every three years, only one Sunday has exactly the same text each and every year. This one. This story of Jesus and the disciples and its aftermath is the only story in the history of the wisdom of the church that says we must hear this one every year. And you go, wow. Wow. Why? 
What is it about this story that has to be heard by the church each and every year? Again, it's not because it's the first story. It's not. It's not even the first in John. It's the second story told by John as far as the resurrection appearances. It's not because it is the first. It's not even because it's the most personal. For my money, that's the story that John tells before this one about Mary. Uh, And he speaks the word, her name, Mary. And she comes to know him again. It's not because it's the most personal. It's not even because it's the most dramatic For my money, that's the two on the way to Emmaus. Uh, That has so much more drama than this particular story. It has none of those reasons why in the wisdom of the church this one must be made. And I think it is because this story, more than any other of the stories, becomes the paradigm for how the church down through the years both hears and proclaims the reality of the resurrection. That's why it is so important. And so I invite you to open up your scriptures. It's John chapter 20, beginning at the 19th verse. Uh, And we simply, I just want to walk through this story uh, and to see this paradigm uh, and to ask how we can live into it. It's a great story. On the evening of that day, that day which changed the world, Easter day, the first day of the week, Sunday, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. There's that context again of fear and of despair uh, and of mourning. They are simply shocked into inaction, right? For fear of the Jews, Jesus came. gospel words. Jesus takes the initiative. Jesus breaks in to their despair. He came, John says, and stood among them. Boom. I'm here. And then he spoke to them. Peace be with you. Shalom be with you. The peace that comes with the kingdom of God be with you. The peace that is the final reality of the purposes of God be Those first disciples never expected to see the risen Christ, and they never expected to hear those words spoken by him. In their own heart of hearts, they knew they were not worthy of such peace. One of them had betrayed him. Peter had denied him. All of them had abandoned him at his worst and most dire hour. And yet the first words out of his mouth, Shalom be with you. And in that moment, they are reconciled to the Father through the Son. 
they are forgiven of their sins. They are drawn into the new life of the king in his kingdom. Peace be with you. That's gospel. That's what he's come to bring, the peace of the kingdom of God. John goes on, he says, and when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. (laughs) This peace comes through this sacrifice. And this one will bear those scars with pride for all of eternity. This is the way God's shalom comes to his world. He showed them his scars and his side. And then the disciples were glad. Are you kidding me? Of course. Then all heaven breaks loose. Joy returns because they had seen the Lord. But then he does a remarkable thing. He commissions them. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. He reiterates that message. That's the gospel message. That's what I have achieved. Now this is to be given to you, and guess what? Given through you to others. As the Father has sent me to do this, to accomplish this work, now I, even so, I am sending you. There's the commission. These ten disciples hidden in that upper room are to be sent out to do what the Son has done. He not only commissions them, though, which is a hugely uh, powerful thing, he empowers them for it. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Be immersed in God's presence yourselves. I give you the gift of God. The Son, the work of the Son, allows for the gift of the Spirit to be given to those who are united to the Son. He breathes on them, and they receive the Holy Spirit. And then he says, here's your task. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. That's how they are to be sent. They are to extend the forgiveness they have received to those around them. If you do this, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So there's their task. The commission is to extend or not extend shalom. To extend or not extend the forgiveness of God given to his creation through the completed work of the Son. That's the task. Now, I think it's important for us to get settled on one thing, and one thing is a very important thing. This commission is primarily their commission. 
those 10, before it becomes our commission. Jesus is not speaking directly to us. He's speaking indirectly to us by speaking directly to them, the ones that he is commissioning, the apostles whose faith, our faith, is founded upon. That's, again, what these resurrection stories are all about. That's exactly what Peter was saying in our epistle reading, our Acts reading from uh, last week, if you remember it. He's speaking to Cornelius, the Roman centurion, and talking about what has just happened. And this is, a, let me read it again. He says, they, the Jewish leaders and the Romans, put Jesus to death by hanging him on a tree. He says here, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us, us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, martyrs in the Greek, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Now, hear about that. God's choosing of them as witnesses uh, is part of the act of redemption. He raised him on the third day and made him to appear. It's part of God's redeeming work. These appearance stories are caught up in the fullness of his redeeming action. <laughs> made him to appear to them because they had been chosen by God as witnesses. These men who had ate, who would eat and drink with him, the risen Christ, after he rose. There's their uniqueness. And there's the ground for their commission. And from their witness, we hear the story. And we receive derivatively our commission. But that's, again, they are part of the gospel. If you want this reiterated, we can go back into Paul when he's writing about the resurrection in his first epistle to the Corinthians. Uh, and this is very early stuff in the gospel. He talks about having given uh, the essence of the gospel to the Corinthians as he himself had received it. This is early, early testimony. And here's the essence of the gospel from 1 Corinthians and Paul. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. What? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared. Four verbs. Died. Buried. Raised. Appeared. The appearance is the act, an aspect of the act of redemption. He appeared. Not to all, but to some. And Paul goes on to uh, 
iterate who that was. He says, he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12, and we're hearing that story now. He appeared to 500 of brothers uh, at one time. He says, some of them were still alive. 500, we don't know that story. We don't, haven't received that story. He appeared to James, his brother, the one who would lead the Jerusalem church. Haven't got that story. And then to all the apostles, all the other outside of the 12. And then last of all, as to one untimely born, he says, he appeared also to me. But again, hear what is being said. The appearance to these ones is an aspect of the gospel. An aspect of God's redeeming work. It is caught up as much as the death and burial and resurrection is. It is the fourfoldness of the, of the story. This is big for the church. It's big for the world. It is the way God designed his act to be known. And we go, wow. Wow. And to what end? Well, again, remember what Peter said. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he, Jesus, is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. He says, that's it. That's what the resurrection does. The resurrection identifies God's anointed one. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. It identifies God's anointed one. It identifies the one who is to judge the heavens and the earth, the living and the dead. It identifies the one who will set God's creation right. And that's what to be proclaimed. We know this, and we are called to testify to this that he is the one appointed to this task. And the world needs to hear it. It is good news for the world to know the one who is the judge, the living, and the dead. Wow. These ten receive that commission. They receive that power. And guess what they do? They go out and begin to do it. They go out and speak to Thomas. Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them that day when Jesus came. They rushed off and they found Thomas and said, we have seen the Lord. And Thomas blew them off. Whoa. Right? Thomas is one who knew Jesus. Thomas is one who loved Jesus. And yet when he hears the news, the very first thing he does is says, not going to believe it. Can't go there. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my fingers into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side. He is graphic. <laughs> I saw what they did. I will never believe. There's pathos in this on both sides. 
How do you think those 10 felt? Right? This testifying to the reality of the risen one is not going to be easy. It's not a slam dunk. <laughs> Even those who knew and loved Jesus are not predisposed to believe in the resurrection. We go, whoa. <laughs> All right. There is some reality to that. But John goes on again to speak about the graciousness of Jesus. On the second Sunday of Easter, eight days later, the disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And again, although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Shalom. Shalom be with you. The same message. It is the gospel message. Shalom. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put your, out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Graciously he comes yet again. Graciously he gives to Thomas what Thomas demanded of him. And he says, believe. And obviously it works. <clears throat> Thomas is, gives the uh, the first and the fullest confession of faith found in the scriptures. My Lord and my God. Wow. Now, for many of us, um, to hear the story of Thomas uh, is to rejoice in the mercy and grace of Jesus. To know that when and we will have difficulties understanding, grasping, embracing these things, we are not predisposed to do these things. But Jesus is gracious. And that we rejoice in that. But you know what? That's not what the story is about. We can take comfort in that, but do not get sidetracked. Remember what the story is about. John finishes this particular story by saying these. He says, Jesus said to him, Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Well, bully for you, right? <laughs> Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have Jesus looks beyond the witness of these first witnesses to those who come to faith through their witness, and he says, those are blessed. We can be blessed when we respond to the call of God through this testimony of these witnesses of God that have been given to us. John himself picks up on that theme and ends with this statement. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. 
John gets it, that these disciples who have these, this testimony of these appearances are good for the first generation only, unless those are recorded for all generations to come. And the church knew that they were driven to record these things, to write these things, so that this story, this testimony, can come down through the generations, down through the ages, to all those who can read or hear this testimony. Just like you and I gathered here today. That's what the story's about. It is to remind us that these stories have been authorized by God to speak about his son to the world that needs to hear it. God speaks through this testimony. Or he does not speak at all. That's what the story is about. And we come with joy to hear them. Well, there's so much to be said in addition to this, but I'm going to have to stop here and segue a little bit to the other main thing that we do today, uh, to talk about the baptisms of Eleanor, of Ethan, and of Samantha. <laughs> and again, we have the great privilege to welcome into the body of Christ these three through the sacrament and the waters of baptism. We believe that they will be drawn into God's new family, into God's new humanity, into those who are called to live life within his new creation. Uh, and we rejoice because we have heard the testimony of these witnesses. And we've heard God speak to us and draw us into life, we have become among those who are blessed. And we rejoice in that. But while we rejoice in these baptisms, we also are being faced with a task given to us who witness these things. And I want to speak about that challenge. It's a dual challenge. And it's primarily for those who are parents and those who are sponsors, but it includes everybody who is here today. It includes everybody in the church today, but really those of us who are gathered here. Two great tasks, and let me outline what they are for each and every one of us. First, we are to immerse these children in this story. That's the primary task of parents, the primary task of sponsors of children in baptism. We are to immerse our children in this story because it has to become their story, just like it's become our story. Because, as John says, this is the only way for these stories, this work is written so that they may believe in Jesus, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, they themselves may have life in his name. That's the task of the parents, sponsors, and the church, to immerse these children 
in story. Find ways of doing that in a personalized and life-giving way. The second great task is this. We must show them the life that comes through belief. We got to show them the life that makes no sense apart from resurrection. We got to show them the new humanity. Show them the new creation. Show them the difference this story makes in our lives. That's the subtext of the Thomas story. Thomas may have blown off those first disciples, but guess what? He never left their side thereafter. He was there eight days later. And he was there eight days later because he did not want to miss out on whatever might happen next. And why was that? Because even though he didn't believe what they said, he knew they did. Right? Their lives were changed by this story. And so must our lives be. That's the two great tasks of the church, to immerse these children in this story and then to show them by the way we ourselves live our life that it is true, gloriously true. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And blessed are those whose lives help others do the same. That's the call and the joy of the church. And by God's will, we might have the grace to participate in it. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.